uh, working on the parsonage. We had an excellent time, some good fellowship. I had these, these weird things on my hand that I hear they're called blisters. I'm not really, not really familiar with those. The only work-related injury I'm used to are paper cuts, maybe from turning pages too fast or something. But we had an excellent time. Um, thank you for all, all of you who came out and helped us. We'll be doing that over the next couple weeks. It's a good time of a fellowship and then getting some work done. It just feels good. It feels kind of manly to work with my hands, so that was, that was nice. Um, I felt good about that. Um, and a word about tonight, historical theology. All right, I understand. All right, but, but don't, don't let that deceive you. All right? Theology just means the study of God, right? So all we're doing is, is studying God, basically, and studying his progression and what he has done in his church kind of throughout history. So it'll be, it'll be very interesting. It'll be very informative. Um, come check that out. Um, I love theology. Um, historical theology is particularly interesting, so it'll be a good time tonight at 6 back in the Fellowship Hall, so, so please feel free to, to come join us then. We're now in our third week in the Gospel of Mark, and we've covered, we've covered eight verses so far, so if my math is correct, that's, that's about a four-verse-a-week four week average. All right, there are 666 verses in the book of Mark, so at this rate, we will finish the book in 166 weeks, which is just over three years, all right? But I'm, I'm kidding. The pace, will, the pace will pick up, I promise. There's, there's so much in the first ch- chapter of Mark that you really kind of got to break it down and, and work through it slowly. And then as you, as you do that, then you can kind of start to take bigger and bigger chunks and then the pace will pick up. So it won't take us nearly that long, but bear with me as we get through kind of this, this first chapter. Because we've been covering really important stuff, right? We've, we've now looked at what the gospel is. We've looked at who Jesus is as Christ and the Son of God. And we looked at the person and the message of John the Baptist. And now starting in verse 9, we're, we're with Jesus the rest of the way. Uh, today we're going to look at two extremely important events in the life of Jesus. We're going to look at his baptism and we're going to look at his temptation. So today we're in Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 13. So we've got five verses this time. So you know we're already we're picking up the pace. Five verses. You can begin turning there in the Bibles. Um, you can find it also printed inside your bulletin. And you'll also find there, printed inside your bulletin, a, pe- a place, a page that is available for you to, to take some notes in. And I, I recommend giving that a try. Remember, we're not just preaching sermons just to do it. I'm not up here just because it's my job. We, we preach church sermons from God's Word so that we can learn about Him. And in learning about God and, and learning more what He is like, we, it leads us to, to love Him more and to appreciate Him more. So, so we want to learn new information, but not just information for information's sake. We want to learn for the sake of, of being changed and of growing and of loving God further. All right? So we want you to leave here knowing something about God that you didn't know before and being changed by that something. So, so try taking some notes. If, if you're anything like me, just, just the process of writing things down really kind of helps to, to sear things into my mind. Um, so follow along as I read. We're going to be in Mark 1, uh, verses 9 through 13. This is God's Word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the, the opportunity of coming and, and opening and studying your word. Father, I pray that we would learn this morning, but I pray that we would worship uh, this morning. I pray that your spirit uh, would be working in this place, um, working in our hearts and our lives, applying these truths 
to our hearts, uh, showing us our sin and showing us Christ and, and leading us to repentance. Father, I pray that this would be a time of worship. This would be a time that, that you are honored. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so if you've been paying attention the last two weeks, the, our verses today, they, they should confuse you a little bit. We've got two very short accounts of two very significant events, and I'll be honest, there's, there's a little bit of, of confusing stuff going on here. I mean, be honest. Have you ever wondered, have you ever stepped back and, and thought to yourself, why was Jesus baptized? Alright, on the surface, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Let's, let's recap for a second. What have we talked about? We've talked about who Jesus was, the Messiah and the Son of God. He, he, he has come to live and die as a substitution in the place of sinners. So our sin separated us from God. Our sin accrued this great debt that we could only pay with eternity in hell, and we were powerless to do anything about it. But Jesus comes to take our place and to pay that debt for us. And He does so by living a perfect life, never sinning once, perfectly upholding the law, and then dying the death that we deserved on the cross. But last week, what was John doing? And what was John's message? He was baptizing. But what kind of baptism was it? It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you, do you see the confusion now? Here we have Jesus. All right, listen to these two verses about, about Jesus' moral life. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In 1 Peter 2.22, Peter, and we can trust Peter, this is Jesus' closest friend, Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So here is perfect, sinless Jesus, right? The only man who ever lived who never sinned, and thus the only man who ever lived who never needed to repent. And what is he doing? He's submitting himself to a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Why? This man had nothing to repent for. There was no need for him to be baptized personally. Or, or was there? I think there are two things going on here with Jesus' baptism. First, as we talked about last week, there, there are some similarities between John's baptism here and the Old Testament kind of ritual washings and cleansings that the priests would undergo. And, and what is interesting is that if you look back at the book of Numbers, priests would be baptized or anointed kind of as a, like a commencement or an inauguration. It was their commencement ceremony. They're, they're sending into service um, by God. And they would be consecrated. They would go through this when? At the age of 30, which is exactly the age Jesus is at this time. So first, Jesus is baptized to mark the beginning of his public ministry. This is kind of the official commencement ceremony. He's being set apart for the work that is to come. Matthew and Luke, they start with the birth of Jesus. John starts with the divinity and the, and the preeminence and the preexistence of Jesus as the Word. And Mark starts with the baptism of Jesus. Because this is the official beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It starts with his baptism... And it ends with his ascension to heaven in Acts. Remember, Judas betrays Jesus, and then Judas kills himself. So the 12 are now 11, right? And they're looking for a 12. They're like, we need somebody to replace Judas. And what do they say? They say that the person that is going to replace Judas has to have been with us since the time of Jesus' baptism. Because that's the beginning. This is where it all starts. So this is a hugely important event. So first, the start of his official ministry. But... 
But the second reason is, is much more important. Jesus, the man without sin, never needed to repent, is baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But he never sinned, right? He doesn't personally need to be baptized. But in reality, he absolutely does. Because it is on the cross three years later that Jesus Christ is going to take on the sin of every person that he is going to die for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us. So Jesus, what is he doing? He's in, in humbling himself and in submitting himself to a baptism for, the forgive, for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. He's making a very loud and definitive statement at the very beginning of his ministry why he has come. He has come to die in the place of sinners. Jesus here is very publicly identifying himself with sinners. The perfect sinless Savior says, in effect, I will take on sin. I will become a sinner in need of repentance in your place. Jesus does not personally need to be baptized, but we very much need him to be baptized. So right away, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is already playing the role of our substitute. He is being baptized for repentance, not for his sins, but for our sins. And by doing this, he is pointing us forward. He is pointing us three years into the future. He is already declaring, I have come to die. I am here for the cross. And in the entire book of Mark, is just the progression forward, heading towards that cross. And in the love and the compassion and the concern that Jesus has for others that will become so evident throughout the book is already clear right here from the beginning. Listen, I would, without hesitation, stand in front of a bullet for my wife or my daughter, right? That's, that's a no-brainer. It would be an easy thing to do. I, I love them more than life, so, so giving up my life to preserve theirs would be easy. But I tell you what, I would really start to hesitate if I was standing in between the gun and say somebody like Hitler or, or Osama bin Laden, like these evil men that, that hurt people, these men that, that would be my enemy. But that is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. Romans 5.10 says that while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Jesus is moving Himself into, into position between us and the gun. And we were God's enemies when He did so. So, so right away we're seeing the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And, I, and I'll save you a little time. I've, I've looked. I've, I've already done all the research. Nowhere else are you going to find anyone like this Jesus. There is nothing else out there like the gospel. There is nothing else out there like the love of the God of the Bible. We, we couldn't have even made this stuff up if we wanted to. Listen, we're not smart enough to come up with a story this amazing. God himself becoming a man and sacrificing himself to save the lives of those who were his enemies. Right? That's the best story that's ever written. That's an amazing story. So, remember those two things off the bat. He's baptized. Why? To inaugurate his three-year public ministry and he's baptized to identify with us as sinners, to begin his substitution in our place for our sin. And that would be enough right there. There's, there's a lot in those verses, but, but the story gets even better. Look at verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately 
he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Alright, don't miss this. Do you see the significance of what's going on here? Don't just kind of quickly gloss over these few verses. Right away, here at the beginning of Mark, we get to one of the most, if not the most, foundational doctrine of Christianity. This is one of the key doctrines that sets us apart from absolutely everything else out there. You're not going to find this anywhere else. So don't give me any of that nonsense of, you know, all the religions, they basically teach the same thing. Nope, it's right here. And this, this also is going to testify to why we believe so strongly in expositional preaching here. Just preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and explaining what the Bible means. Because as you work through God's Word faithfully, you're going to eventually cover everything that God wants us to know. So we don't need to set aside a special week. We don't need to have a special topical sermon on the Trinity, because here it is, right here in our text. The Trinity. Alright, the sometimes confusing, but the very biblical and very critical doctrine of God. The God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is completely unique and completely different than the God of every other religion. And here in just these two short verses, we encounter this amazing truth. There are three different persons here in these verses, right? We have Jesus, He's coming up out of the water. We have the Spirit who is descending upon Jesus. And we have the Father who is speaking. And that, at its most basic, is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons. There is only one God, but it exists in a perfect community of three equal persons. And this is the doctrine that sets us apart from every other Christian, non-Christian religion. Islam believes in God, Allah, right? But he is, they absolutely reject this blasphemous idea of what they call, of what they call the Trinity. Mormons, right, they supposedly believe our Bible and use our stuff, same God, right? They outright reject the Trinity. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. They use our Bibles, but they deny the Trinity. Thus, they too are not Christians because, listen, you cannot be a Christian without believing in the triune God. Right? Triune is just the adjective for Trinity, the, the God of the Trinity, the triune God. Most people that reject the Trinity, this is what they'll say. Well... It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? One God, three persons. What does that even mean? And and I'll be the first to admit that there is some mystery when it comes to the Trinity. But but shouldn't we expect that that there's there's, there's going to be some mystery when it comes to God, right? If my puny, feeble, finite, sinful mind can absolutely understand everything about God, then this God's not very impressive because, look, I'm I'm not that intelligent, right? We want a God that we don't understand absolutely everything about because He is God. He is the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing creator God of all reality, right? So we need to expect that there are some things that we're not going to quite grasp. Job 11.7 says, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So, so we, have to, we have to at least get rid of this notion that we should be able to understand absolutely everything. And I understand because I'm the first that wants to figure it all out and be able to give a good, perfect explanation for what this is. But, but there is some mystery when it comes to God. But 
To say that there is a mystery involved with the Trinity is not to say that we can't understand the Trinity. Because we can. We can understand the Trinity because God revealed it to us for the purpose of being understood. So that we can know Him better. So that we can better know what He is like. And the better we know what He is like, the the more we will love Him. So we've got to have some understanding of the nature of our God. And that nature, the Bible says, is triune. We start with Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Alright, that's, that's pretty simple. There is one God. In Isaiah 45.5, God says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So there aren't a bunch of gods out there running around competing for who's going to be the guy. No, the Bible says there is one God. Alright, but then as you start to kind of read the Bible, and you start to work through it, it becomes pretty apparent that there is something unique about this one God. We start running across these other verses, like John 1.1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Titus 2.13, Paul tells us, he's writing about the appearance, right? Alright, the only God, the only person that appears is Jesus. He says, the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is undeniably clear in the New Testament that Jesus thought he was God and that his followers thought that he was God. And then there's the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5, lying to the Holy Spirit is said to be the exact same thing as lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. And then throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is said to possess all the qualities that that only God can possess. He's said to be present everywhere. He's said to know all things. He's said to have infinite power. He's said to be eternal and to be holy. That can only describe God. And then the Holy Spirit does things that only God can do. He, he brings to life, right? He, he creates. He does all these things that are, that are the exclusive priority of God. Three persons all spoken of as God. And then we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus says to go out and he says to baptize. What? He says to baptize them in the name, singular name, all right? Not the names, plural. He says baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says one name, and then he gives us three persons. Unity and multiplicity together. And that idea, it's not that unfamiliar to us. All the way back in Genesis 2.24, Adam and Eve, right? Two persons. But what does God say when when they come together? It says two persons become one flesh. And that word for one is the exact same word that is used in Deuteronomy 6 to describe God. One God, three persons. That's the Trinity. And listen, sometimes we treat the Trinity as kind of a, it's the dirty little secret of Christianity. Alright, uh, let's, let's not talk about that whole Trinity thing. Right? That's, that's, that's a little weird. It's kind of hard to explain. Is, is the whole Trinity thing really that important? And biblically, yes, it absolutely is. The Trinity is not some secondary Christian doctrine. Listen, it is arguably the foundational Christian doctrine upon which everything else rests. The Trinity is the the governing center of all other Christian belief. It is the one that shapes and affects everything else we believe. Think about it. Many other religions, they they share some similarities with us. and We should expect that. That's not that crazy. Lots of religions encourage love. Alright, so, so that fact alone means that love can't be the thing that distinguishes us or, or sets us apart from other religions. 
Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus died and, and rose again, right? So that can't be the thing that, that sets us apart or distinguishes us. No, the thing that makes Christianity absolutely unique and distinct is the identity and the nature of our God. Practically everyone worships some God. It's not the worshiping of a God that matters. It's the worshiping of which God that matters. The foundation of our entire faith, the foundation upon which everything else rests, is God Himself. Right? His nature and His identity. And God reveals Himself to us in Scripture as a trinity. One God. Three persons. Right? We definitely cannot deny this, this idea of the trinity and be a Christian. But, but we also shouldn't ignore it. We need to get back to thinking about God in the way that He has revealed Himself to us. And not in the way that is easiest to understand or, or that we're the most comfortable with or that, that is appealing to other people. We don't get to pick and choose when it comes to God. Right? That's, we don't have that um, option. We need to accept what He has revealed about Himself to us. We need to delight in Him for who He is and what He is like and we need to let that truth shape and change us. Listen, the Trinity is a beautiful thing. It is not something to be embarrassed about, but it is something to find joy in. Just, just look at what is happening in this one verse. All right, here's the Spirit is, is coming to Jesus. He's descending upon Jesus, and He's going to comfort and minister and empower Jesus for the rest of His ministry. And here is God the Father. He is declaring His love and His, and his delight in His Son. He says, I am well pleased with you. This is a beautiful picture of how the Trinity works and what God is like. Three persons in perfect, eternal community, always loving and serving and giving to each other. And we love that part about God, don't we? We love the idea that God is love. And He is. That is a perfect and good biblical truth. But God is love only because God is Trinity. Right? God cannot be love without first or also being Trinity. Hear me out. Let me, let me try to explain this. Think about it. Pretty much everyone believes that God is love. No one's really going to argue with that. But, but no one else believes He's a Trinity. We've established that. But everyone else is going to believe, follow me here, everyone else believes that there was a time, right, when God created. Okay? So before God created, right, there was nothing. There was just God. Follow me? So before God creates, there's just God. If... This God that creates is not a trinity, right? If it's just a singular, one-person, regular old God like most people think of, right? Then that God cannot be love. Why? What does love require? Love requires two persons, all right? Love requires the lover and the loved. You cannot have love with one singular party. There has to be something for you to love. And that is why the Trinity is absolutely necessary to the idea that God is love. Because before time, before God created, you had God in perfect community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Loving and serving and giving to each other. Right? If it was just a one-person regular God like Allah or, or any other God, that God cannot create out of love. He, he might create out of need. He might be bored. He might need someone to, to come entertain him or, or to be with him. So he could create out of that. He could create out of power. He could want people to, to serve him that he can board it over. But he could not create out of love. Only the perfect community of the Trinity allows for God to be love. 
All right? This is something absolutely critical. You can use this. This is a great kind of go-to, something if you're talking to our Jehovah's Witnesses friends. They'll affirm that God is love. Ask them how. How is God love before he created? Because there was nothing to love. All right? So Trinity, or love requires Trinity. The Trinity is so critical to who God is. If you take that away from God, then you don't even have God at all. You have some other perversion of God that, that we have created ourselves. But he is a trinity, and that should encourage us, and that should delight us. We, we learn what love is by looking at God and, and what he is like and how he acts in this verse. We try to learn and strive to love each other like God loves. Perfect, self-sacrificial, other-centered love. That is how we are called to relate to each other. We should look at the trinity and not be embarrassed or confused. We should be amazed by our God. How unique He is. Nothing else like Him. And how loving and giving He is. So we got to praise God and thank Him for who He is. And He is one God existing in three persons. Let us not neglect this important foundational truth. And as we dwell on God, let us, let us be in prayer that He will make us more and more like Him. So that we too can begin to become other-centered, self-giving, and sacrificially loving to each other to those around us. So man, those first three verses, right, they're, they're pretty great. Everything starts off beautifully. Jesus, he's, he's being baptized. He's, he's showing his love for us. He's identifying with us as sinners. He's, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he has been affirmed by God the Father. So man, really, really nice start, right? But immediately, things take quite the turn. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he is in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Again, there's that word immediately. We've already got it twice, just in our passage. 42 times Mark is going to use this word in this book, because he's not messing around. He's baptism, trinity, and immediately, boom, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. Notice, first of all, who's in control here. Right, it's, not God, it's not Satan showing up and ambushing Jesus and attacking him and saying, Ha here I am. I'm, I've come to tempt you. No, it's, it's God the Holy Spirit driving and sending Jesus out into the wilderness to Satan. God is in complete control here. And it's the same with, with the book of Job back in the Old Testament. Satan has to come to God to get permission from God to even be able to touch Job. So Satan is evil. He is a great adversary. But Satan is not God's equal. It's not a yin and yang type of thing. It's not like there's the good God over here and the evil God over here, and they're, and they're battling to see who's going to win. No, Satan is not the evil God. He has extremely limited power, and he's inferior to God and has no chance whatsoever of actually defeating God. Now, let's, let's step back for one second. This is kind of one of those places sometimes when you start to lose people. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I can read your mind. I know exactly what you're thinking. But seriously, guys, Satan, demons, red horn, horns, pointy tail, pitchfork, right? You guys actually believe this stuff? Right? Now, now I know you guys are crazy. And I understand where you're coming from. Sometimes even Christians are embarrassed by this idea. But, but let's, just, let's just think about it for a second. Come into this with an open mind and, and let's talk about this whole Satan kind of demon thing. Most people, right, they're at least open to the possibility of the existence of God. We're, we're just all built that way, right? We're all 
created with the kind of this sort of inborn sense of God. So you have to at least grant that the, God, the existence of God is possible. And it's actually, not, it's actually not possible to prove that he doesn't exist. It's impossible to do so. You, you can't do that. So if it's possible for a good, all-powerful, spiritual being to exist, then, then it isn't that much of a stretch to, to believe that it is also possible for evil, bad spiritual beings to exist as well. And the Bible says that these bad spiritual beings do exist. No, they aren't red. No, they don't have pitchforks. No, there aren't anything like what we think of them in in movies and TV. But if you're going to believe in Jesus, you have to believe in Satan and demons as well because Jesus very much believed in them. And it really, if you think about it, it really isn't that crazy. Just look at the world. Just, Just read the news. There is too much terrifying, disturbingly evil things that go on out there for it to just be us. There is something evil out there. We have the Holocaust. We have ethnic cleansing. We have all kinds of these unspeakably brutal and disturbing acts that beg for some sort of explanation. Until 150 or 200 years ago, people had no problems with this stuff. They understood it completely. They believed that there were evil spiritual forces out there. All this stuff just made sense. But now we just think those people are idiots, right? And, and we try to explain everything away um, as the result of bad parenting or a chemical imbalance in their head or they were picked on as a child. We look for everything we can possibly find to explain away evil. But it doesn't work and, and things just keep getting worse. There's a professor over at, over at Columbia University, not far from here. His name is Andrew Del Banco. This guy is... He's definitely not a Christian, but he kind of started to recognize this problem, and he wrote a book about it. And the book was called, titled, The Death of Satan. All right? A non-Christian writing about this. The Death of Satan. And he opens with this line. He says, A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources, resources available for coping with it. Right, in other words, what he's saying is that we all know that the evil is out there. Right? We all recognize it. We all see it. You can't miss it. But we've gotten rid of the ideas of, of evil and original sin and, and demons and, and Satan and, and any idea that there is actually any sort of evil thing. So we no longer even have the categories to understand or explain evil. Just read the newspaper or watch the news after something terrible happens. What's going on in the news? Everyone's shocked. Everyone's scrambling. They're calling to all these experts. Let's talk to this sociologist. Let's talk to this professor. Let's kind of try to figure out why this happened. And they go look for all these reasons. And this guy says, oh, I think it was this. This is why that guy was evil. Oh, I think it was this. They come up with all these, try to come up with these explanations like, well, some kids picked on him when he was young. That explains why he slaughtered dozens of people. But no, that absolutely doesn't explain it at all. That doesn't make any sense. And this is illustrated well, I think, in The Silence of the Lambs. Right, I've never seen the movie. I've never read the book, so I'm not recommending it. I, I, I hear it's terrifying, so I'm not doing but, but it speaks to this a little bit. All right? And, and there's, there's a part that I've read that I think is spot on. The story, if you know anything about it, it's about this guy named Hannibal Lecter. Right? And he's this terribly evil kind of murderer, very twisted and distorted. And then it's about a detective, Officer Starling, and she's kind of trying to figure this whole thing out, figure out what Hannibal was doing, figure him out. And she comes to him and says... What could have made you like this? What happened to you that you're like this? 
see what she's doing. She's doing what the news does, right? She's looking for explanations. What happened to you when you were younger? What bad stuff happened in your past that made you like this? She's trying to explain away the evil. But Hannibal replies. He says, nothing has happened to me. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You've got everybody in these moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? And that is a very biblical perspective. That there is real evil out there, whether we want to believe it or not. So it's not that crazy then to believe that there could be real spiritual agents of evil as well. And sometimes I think the way we, we tend to treat Satan, we tend to treat demons, kind of in our culture proves that they exist. What do we do? We, we make caricatures of them. We make cartoons about them. We make them silly and, and funny and, and we laugh at them. We make them harmless. We, um, we, we name sports teams after them. I mean, come on. The New Jersey Devils or, or the Duke Blue Devils. This is reason in and of itself that you shouldn't root for Duke. Like, who names their team after the Prince of Darkness, right? I, I don't understand that at all. But that's what we're doing. We're trying to trivialize evil. We're trying to make ourselves comfortable around it so we'll be less frightened by it. Have you ever heard the famous line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist? I think that's spot on. That is what has happened. No one believes that he even exists anymore, and I guarantee that he loves that. Well, the Bible says that he exists, and it says that his name is Satan. And Satan, translated, just means adversary. All right, And here in our last verse, we have what I think was maybe one of the most significant, fascinating meetings in the history of mankind. Right, here you have Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, existing before time began, all good, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, having taken on human flesh and just beginning the ministry which he knows is going to lead straight to his death. And here is Satan, the, the fallen angel, the prince of this world, the adversary, the destroyer, the tempter, the evil one, Jesus' greatest enemy. And here they are, face-to-face, 2,000 years ago, in the Judean wilderness, deciding the fate of the entire world. This moment, this is one of those few moments that if I could pick one to go back and see, this would maybe be one of them. Maybe the birth of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, but, or the resurrection of Jesus, but this is right there with that. This is a fascinating story. We can't even begin to imagine what this was like. And I don't think we can come close to understanding what Jesus went through here. The accuser, the father of lies, the prince of this world comes to Jesus and he throws everything that he has at this temptation. Does this temptation, does this remind you of anything, by the way? We, let's take step back and kind of look at our whole passage this morning. Does, does the whole thing remind you of anything? We've talked about it the last two weeks a little bit, how important it is to understand the Old Testament so that we can better understand the New Testament. And, and Mark is doing it again here. Genesis is all over these few passages, these first few passages in Mark. So just as in Genesis, what happens in Genesis 1? We have God the Father speaking, right? And we have the Spirit descending and hovering over the face of the water. And then in John 1, we're told that Jesus is there, the Word, and everything is created through Jesus. Three persons. That's a moment of creation. 
And then in the first part of our passage, we have those three same persons here at the moment, at the beginning or inauguration of re-creation. So our first few verses strongly echo Genesis 1 and 2 and the Trinity's creation of everything. But the temptation here also strongly echoes Genesis 3. What happens there in Genesis 3? God has created everything. He's created Adam and he's put Adam in a garden, kind of like a wilderness. And what happens? Satan shows up and he tempts the first Adam. And what is the temptation? He comes to him and he says, Did God really say? Did God really say? He's tempting Adam to doubt God's word. Did he he really say that he can't do this? Did he really mean that? You can't trust him. Listen to me. Take care of yourself. So the first temptation was basically, are you going to trust and obey God and his word? That was Adam's temptation. But what about Jesus? We get more more detail about Jesus' temptation there in Matthew 4. We, We read it earlier in the service. Jesus is starving. 40 days. He hasn't eaten. He's in the wilderness. And Satan comes to him. And what does Satan say? He says, eat, turn these stones into bread. But what is it? What was the last thing that Jesus heard before he was driven into the wilderness? Or the words of his father? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Satan's basically saying to Jesus, what are you doing here? How could God let you go through something like this? How could a father put his son through something like this? Does he really love you? Are you really his beloved son? Don't trust him. He's not going to take care of you. Take these stones and turn them into food and take care of yourself. It's the exact same temptation. Has God really said? Are you going to trust God and obey his word? But what is Jesus' reply? He quotes scripture right back to Satan. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's no accident that that was Satan's reply. Satan is challenging Jesus not to trust God's word. And Jesus replies, not only am I going to trust God's word, but I'm going to live by it. I'm going to do everything that I do according to God's word. In Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that that Jesus is the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, plunging us all into a continuous cycle of sin and death, the second Adam would succeed, freeing us from that cycle of sin and death and bringing us new life. So why this temptation? Why does Mark include this? What's the point? What what can we learn from this account? First, as we read earlier, Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So like his baptism, Jesus was tempted so that he could identify with us so that he could be our substitute. Listen, when we think of Jesus Christ as our substitute, we almost always think of the cross. And that's good. That that makes sense. Jesus was our substitute on the cross. But we can't make the mistake of thinking of only the cross. Jesus' entire life was a substitution. He didn't just die for us. Listen to me here. That actually wouldn't have been enough. 
right? He also had to live for us. He also had to perfectly uphold the law and never sin. He had to be baptized for us. He had to be tempted for us. He did everything that he did in our place. He lived as our substitute so that he could die as our substitute. He succeeded where Adam and every single one of us after Adam have absolutely failed. All right, and living for us and dying for us, Jesus not only pays our debt, he not only forgives our sin, but he also gives us his righteousness. All right, he not only gets rid of the penalty, but he gives us his reward. All right, think of it like this. Imagine present day, some foreign country, you're a slave in a foreign country. And the Bible describes sin as, as a type of slavery. So in a way, all of us were. But imagine that you're a slave and you have absolutely nothing, right? You have no possessions, you have no money, you have no legal rights, you've known nothing but slavery your entire life. You're in a pretty bad situation. But then someone shows up and they pay you a price and they free you. That's pretty great, right? That's that's the justification. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. But imagine if they not only just freed you, but then they also come to you and they give you their house. They give you their car. They give you their money. They, they introduce you to their, to your son, their son or daughter, and, and you marry into the family. They basically set you up for your entire life and give you everything that they have out of their own pocket. That's the righteousness. It is so much better than just being free. Jesus saves us and he sets us up. He gives us his righteousness, without which none of us could enter heaven. Listen, if he had just shown up and died on a cross, we would be just forgiven. And if we were just forgiven, we would be innocent. But we wouldn't be righteous. Alright, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that, that the unrighteous cannot and will not go to heaven. So that means we must have righteousness to get in. But Paul, t- Paul tells us also in Romans 3.10 that there is no one righteous. No one has the righteousness that they need to get into heaven. So Jesus comes and he lives that perfect life. He's baptized for us. He is tempted for us. He does what we failed to do. He perfectly fulfills the law in our place. And he gives us his Righteousness. It's called, and Martin Luther called it, an alien righteousness because it's not ours. Jesus gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. You can never read this verse enough. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how both of the things we're talking about are in that one verse? That is why Jesus is going through all this. That's why he's baptized, so that he can identify with you and your sin, so that he can take your place. That's why he was tempted, so that he can succeed where you have failed so miserably. Jesus lives and he dies in our place. He is a lifelong, perfect substitute for us. He perfectly did, but we have no hope whatsoever of doing So let us remember that. Let us always be reminding ourselves of Jesus' lifelong substitution in our place. Let us praise and thank God for His mercy and sending us His Son so that we could be saved and changed, so that we could be justified and declared righteous. 
Let us pray that, that God would implant these truths in our hearts and then change us by these truths and make us more like His perfect, loving, self-giving Son. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus Christ. Father, I confess my sin, I confess my failure, and I confess my weakness to do anything about it. Father, we were Your enemies, and You sent Your Son anyways. He, he lived the perfect life so that He could die a perfect death in our place. Father, we would be, we deserve nothing but, but hell and separation from you. And you loved us anyways because of the work of your son. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be about um, doing all these things that we can be saved or about proving how righteous or pure or how good we are. But Father, we would be about confessing our sin and coming to the cross and saying we can't do it. We don't have it. We need Jesus Christ. We need his righteousness. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would work in this place, that you would apply these truths to people's hearts, Father, that you would convict of sin and that you would um, show us our need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, Father. We thank you for this time. I thank you for this place and we thank you for your word. pray all these things in your son Jesus' name.